0: Our next speaker is Dr. Jeanette Murrowski. I work with her in Indianapolis. Uh, she's dually trained as a dentist and a dermatologist. She attended Harvard Dental School followed by Harvard Medical School. She did her dermatology training here in San Francisco. In 96, she moved back to Indianapolis. She now practiced dermatology and treats mucosal diseases in Indianapolis. She remains active in academia by teaching, lecturing, and publishing papers and chapters. Please welcome Dr. Jeanette Borowski. Hey, it's wonderful to be here, and I know all of you are um, probably thrilled to learn that the weather has improved considerably. It was actually sunny outside. One important part of uh, my introduction, which uh, Chris did not mention, is that I get to work with Chris every single week. We work in the same office, and it's been an absolutely uh, amazing experience for me. I really enjoy it, and I can't say if—I don't know if he enjoys it, too, but we have a lot of fun together. Um, Today I'm going to talk to you about oral dermatology. The handout— I will uh, make available before the end of the day, I hope, um, and I apologize for it not getting in the book. Today, my hope is to review with you the oral examination. I'm gonna interest, uh, introduce you and illustrate uh, quite a number of normal variants because I find that that's actually uh, some, the oral cavity is an area that most clinicians, whether they be physicians or um, physician assistants or nurse practitioners really have a hard time with, Um, And I'm gonna share with you specific lesions of the lips, the tongue, the oropharynx, and I'm gonna touch on some toothy findings. When examining the um, patients, and particularly the oral exam, it's important to be organized, to have adequate lighting. I like to have overhead lighting, which is just the standard light that you would have in a room. And for the comfort of the patient, I like to recline the patient um, at about 45 degrees. So a normal table would be ideal. And this allows you to stabilize the patient's head Elevate the patient back And tilt the head to examine the oral cavity Sorry You want it higher? I can make it higher Can you hear me now? Is that better? Yeah? Okay, great Whenever you're examining any mucosal area, whether it be the oral cavity or the vulvar um, area, it's important to appreciate that moisture, normal moisture from the local area will alter the appearance of the lesion. So it's important to use a piece of gauze to dry off the mucosa. And I like to use a two by two um, for both areas. And this not only allows me to dry the mucosa, but also to retract the lip and the tongue when I need to. Um, Even minor trauma will alter the primary morphology and um, e- the trauma may occur from normal activities such as eating, talking, swallowing, um, and just basically being alive. And there are only a limited number of reaction patterns. When examining the oral cavity, there's not only the intraoral component, but there's the extraoral component, and I'm going to go through these as well. So first, you want to start out with evaluation of the head and neck, and um, usually that's done on fast. but part of it will be done by um, having... If the patient's sitting up, you can uh, step behind them or to the side. So here you can appreciate this is a gentleman who originally was wearing his shirt buttoned up. When I asked him to open up his shirt, lo and behold, there was... Can you guys see that? A mass in the neck. So the head and neck exam is an important part of the evaluation, and you need to have them not only open up their shirt but also remove the intraoral appliances. Then you wanna evaluate the neck specifically by both visualization and by palpation. You wanna feel their lymph nodes. You wanna feel for the thyroid gland. Next, you move on to the lips. Now you're getting closer to the oral cavity. This is now getting exciting. The lips are symmetric from left to right. This is, um, but you have an upper and a lower lip. Um, And notice that the upper lip has a different um, architecture than the lower lip. Oh, and I wanna go back. If you notice, one thing that is very important to appreciate is that these normal markings that are present, sometimes you see them if somebody's um, kissed a, or placed a, um, a glass with uh, on the lipstick, um, uh, on lips with lipstick, you'll appreciate that there are these markings. These are critically important to observe even in the normal evaluation because it's not unusual to have someone come in and say that they have irritation or pain or burning of their lips, you don't appreciate anything. And then boom, you realize, wait, I don't see those those normal markings. And that tells you that even um, though you can't visually see anything um, such as erythema or scale, there is edema and there is inflammation. So appreciate those normal markings. Then you go into the oral cavity. And the first thing I like to do is retract the lower lip. And as you can see in this um, picture, there is a lot of shiny component to this. That's because the lip, uh, the mucosa has not been dried off with the gauze, and so you're not able to appreciate the underlying mucosa um, to its maximum. But here the mucosa has been dried off, and you can appreciate that you see a lot, a lot of superficial vasculature you also notice that there are these fibrinous, um, fibrous bands called the frenum on the, both the upper and the lower lip, and these are normal. However, if they extend too far onto the gingiva, which is the tissue that surrounds the teeth and the bony uh, arches, then um, the normal activities of talking or swallowing will actually cause um, retraction and eventually bone loss of the gingiva. So. What do I mean by that? This band, if it's too tight or if it uh, extends too far uh, towards the tip, and I'll show it to you over here as well, um, can actually cause permanent bone loss. So it's very common in children to snip that off early on. And it's the dentist who will do that, the pediatric dentist, uh, though I've seen dermatologists do that as well. This is called the vestibule. And here you've got lots and lots of structures, and I'd like to point uh, some of these out you can appreciate that you've got these intradental papillae. These should be scalloped in the healthy individual. Um, if I just point to one, will that work for you guys on that side? Okay, thanks, because I feel like I'm getting a little seasick here. <laughs> um, if you just look at the interdental papillae, they should be uh, scalloped and pointed in the normal healthy mucosa. Um, the, immediately right at the margin, you'll have a one to three millimeter free edge which you can actually place a little uh, probe in. That's normal and healthy. When that uh, space becomes deeper than three millimeters, four, five, six, or even eight millimeters, you've got underlying bone loss and that's called periodontal disease. So um, a free margin is healthy. If it's small, underlying it and beneath there, both on the maxilla, which is the upper jaw and the mandible, you have the attached gingiva. That typically looks more pink. It is uh, firm and doing biopsies there can be a little bit tough. Um, And then you move on to the mucogingival junction line. This is where the mucosa really begins and you can really freely move that around. Um, And again, you have illustrated for you the uh, superior and inferior Um, labial uh, freedom so notice this is a Caucasian individual and they have the attached gingiva looks pink if it is um, an individual color it's not unusual to have pigmentation there on their free gingiva Uh, I mean on the attached gingiva the dental arches change as the patient uh, matures usually when children are born or infants are born they do not have any teeth Um, And that is a normal physiologic edentulous state. Then they um, will have two different sets of teeth that will grow over a period of time. All of you are familiar with the deciduous and then the adult teeth. And this is what we have illustrated right here. This is an adult arch, both the maxilla and the mandible. And then in a pathologic state, um, people will lose their teeth either um, because of disease or because of um, uh, a mechanical extraction. And this is a gentleman who has um, an edentulous maxilla. And notice that there's this lump right here. And this is an edentulous mandible where the edentulous state has been present for six months to several years in the posterior region. But in the interior region, this is just a freshly extracted mouth Um, and over time this lump here will actually regress so the bone regresses both in a vertical direction and it will also move towards the mouth and you'll see people who've lost their teeth they look like they have too much lips because the teeth aren't pushing those out and this is physiologic pigmentation in an individual of color Notice that the pigmentation uh, remains, but now, in addition to the frenum, which, you, which is here, you've got a brand-new bump, and new papule in the midline, and you've also got some new ridges right here, and we'll look at those when we look at the palate. And this is more extensive physiologic pigmentation in a patient who has um, all of their teeth. Looking at the buccal uh, mucosa, we've now moved way inside the oral cavity. You've got a um, variable intense horizontal bite line. This is typically white, though it may be pink. And this is a reflection of the occlusal plane where the teeth come together. And um, it is formed literally by the suction that occurs when we swallow or when we talk and we are constantly pulling in the mucosa and forming almost a um, like a keratosis, just like we would on the palms and soles of our feet. On the buccal mucosa, you can also appreciate that there's a normal papule. I have had patients who've had their papule biopsied. Please don't do that because that is normal, physiologic, opening to the parotid duct, and it's Stenson's duct. It is always located across from the maxillary second molar. So this second molar, the large tooth in the back always has this papula. It may be variable in size. And sometimes it gets inflamed or irritated, particularly if there's a little stone in the duct. But um, this is an area that I always avoid seeing, even if I'm looking for a pathologic lesion because repairing this is actually something Um, that requires microscopic surgery. So not something that I am able to do at all. If you were to palpate the parotid duct, and the way you palpate is you place your finger just behind the angle of the jaw right here and just gently bring it in towards the um, papule, you'll actually be able to appreciate a small drop of clear aqueous saliva. That is a normal state. And to best visualize this, you have to dry the mucosa. And then, boom, you'll appreciate this little papule that will appear right there. Now, remember I showed you that edentulous um, man who's got uh, a papule in the center of the papillae? Well, that is actually this incisive papillae that is always located behind the teeth, but when the patient is edentulous for a long time, has lost all their teeth, this little papule becomes will actually remain in, in its original location, but the bone surrounding the teeth regresses in this direction, and boom, that incisive papilla will appear on top. And that's another little pap- papule that you don't want to biopsy because that's normal and physiologic. All of us have um, had a pizza burn. Who here has never had a pizza burn? Good, because <laughs> I know I, see, I can't seem to avoid it, even though I know. And when I have, not only does the burn, is it painful, but it's also, it was the first time that I appreciated, even as a little kid, that the palate had a different texture. And that's these rugae. These are these horizontal, uh, fibrous bands. And I have no idea why we have those. I cannot, for the life of me, imagine. Um, and I know that cats have even more prominent ones than I than people do. Um, but these will sometimes become evident as they were in our edentulous patient sometimes we look at the palate of someone and we see these little red umbilicated papules these are the openings to the minor salivary glands now i've talked about the major um, parotid duct there are two other major ducts called the sublingual and submandibular but in the oral cavity, there are also thousands of minor salivary glands. And here we can see that they have become inflamed and irritated because of the tobacco and the heat of someone smoking. And this occurs very commonly in uh, patients who um, smoke either tobacco or other substances. Um, the interesting thing about this is that this is not premalignant but it is, I use this to help me illustrate to the patient that what they're doing is actually very harmful and irritating to them, and that people who smoke um, are at increased risk of developing squamous cell carcinoma, and I'll show you something like that later. Okay, now this is not a squamous cell carcinoma. This is a rock-hard, bony, Protuberance in the midline of the palate. This is a very prominent one. About one in 10 individuals will have a much uh, less prominent one. And some of you may be able to put your tongue up to the roof of your mouth and see if you can feel a little, pap- uh, a little uh, papular nodule there. Sometimes it's actually a tumor like we see here. This is an exophytic growth of, or overgrowth of bony uh, tissue that occurs right at the junction of the palate and this is where embryologically you have a left plate and a right plate of the palate that come together and sometimes these cells don't realize that they need to stop growing and then they keep growing and over time it'll become more and more prominent. This is not something that needs to be uh, treated unless you're planning to put in a a plate, either a denture or um, a partial and this interferes. How do, you re- how do you treat this? It's actually quite fascinating. I don't do this, but I did when I was in dental school. Um, you have to basically elevate the mucosa, uh, separate the bone from the overlying mucosa, and you take a little chisel and a little hammer, and you click, 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 boom, and it just separates right off. Then you put the mucosa back on because not having any mucosa on an uh, open, bony sore is exquisitely painful. <clears throat> This is a really interesting um, entity. This is called angina belosa hemorrhagica. And you'll be able to appreciate that there's this soft mass right here. This is not just any mass, this was my father-in-law. One day he was living just up the road um, uh, near the water and he had come to to stay in uh, San Francisco while I was a resident and obviously his son was here too. And we had a young um, son, his grandson. And um, he'd come and visit with us on a regular basis. One day he calls in a panic. You have to come over right now. I can't breathe. I don't know what's going on. We drop everything. We put our son in the car. Didn't even manage to buckle him up until Steve you know, was already on the road. And um, we get to his apartment. And there he is, leaning forward, in pale as a ghost. And he's got this mask right there turns out that this is actually not uncommon, and it is quite frightening, but it typically resolves spontaneously very quickly, and so physicians almost never get to see this. Um, but this is very much analogous to a, uh, a bullous eruption that occurs probably because of suction. And I don't know what caused him to develop this little blister or this uh, submucosal split, but it immediately filled up with blood and mucus. Mucus is from the minor salivary glands and um, it gave him this sensation that he was choking or gagging. How did I get this picture? (laughs) There's this poor man, you know, leaning forward, terrified. He can't breathe, he doesn't know what to do. My my husband, who's a physician too, had no idea what to do and I'm like, wait, you can't do anything. I have to go down to the car and get my camera. And there I am, I run back upstairs, I take a picture. And um, and then my, my husband's like, you know, a little panicked, what are you doing, what are you doing? And I take this fork, and I literally just touch it to the mucosal, and it everything just comes running out. He, my father-in-law gags, swallows it, and he's completely cured, never happened again. So, um, It was one of those fun memories that I have of (laughs) his visit. This is typically where the oral exam starts. And as you can imagine, this is where we normally tell our students, this is how you do an oral exam. You ask the patient to open up their mouth and say, ah. Well, unfortunately you would have missed all these things that I shared with you earlier. But if you do this, and this is a picture, not my picture, because I almost never use tongue blades. I actually dislike them terribly because I find that they obstruct too much. So I tend to use uh, dental mirrors. Um, and they, they slide easier and they move around and there's only one small, you know, one centimeter area that's covered and then the handle, I'm able to move that around. But what you can see here is that you've got this midline uvula, you've got these folds right here I never can remember which one's which, palatoglossal and palatopharyngeal, but the, the, finally one day I realized that the palatoglossal is the tongue one, so that's anterior, it's closer to the tongue, and the palatopharyngeal is further back in the pharynx. Oh, and then between the two, you have these, these tonsils. And uh, many of you who've had seen patients with mono or tonsillitis or um, will have very prominent palatine, uh, palatine tonsils. And um, this whole area, including the lymphatics that are present on the lateral border of the tongue, all make up a lymphatic circle called wald ring. This is not anatomically distinct, this is just an area. And that was a question once on boards, so I don't know if you'll ever see that again, but at least you've heard about it now again. And these are what we call lovingly kissing tonsils in a patient who has mononucleosis. And then this is an entity um, which is not very commonly seen. This is actually the epiglottis. The epiglottis is only visible, I'd probably say, one in a hundred, maybe maybe one in a thousand people um, uh, just through a routine oral exam like we are showing here. And I once said to a medical student group that I was talking to that, this ha- that I have never seen it. And, of course, she had to say, but I have it. So I took a picture, it's not nearly as good as this one, so I share with you this one. Um, But it could be very scary to see this um, if you're not familiar with this entity. The dorsal surface of the tongue is covered by small papillae. Many of these are taste buds. You've got the fungiform papillae, which look like little mushrooms. They're bright red. The filiform papillae have a hair-like projection, and those are the ones that get elongated in black, hairy tongue. And then in the posterior part of the tongue, separating the anterior two-thirds from the posterior one-third are the circumvallate papillae. And these are always arranged in this inverted V. And I, I chose to show these um, in this two pictures just to show you the incredible variations in their appearance. Should I switch to this side so everybody gets part-time now? You guys okay? All right. And um, another board question, I don't know how often you guys have to do the boards, but um, is what is located at the uh, apex of this V, and that's the foramen cecum. It's the opening of the thyroid. That's where the thyroid gland actually um, begins. We're moving away from the pharynx. We're moving away from the buccal mucosa. Now we're going to talk about actually a Uh, some other entities in the oral cavity. And the first one I wanted to show you was a scalloped tongue. This is a patient with neurofibromatosis. They have an enlarged tongue. And because the tongue is enlarged, the um, only place that the tongue can actually get bigger and get some more space is to try and capture all the space between the teeth. Remember we talked about those interdental papillae? Well, um, those are what we can see and this is where the tongue is sort of uh, insinuating itself throughout and this is why it looks scalloped. You can also appreciate that this patient has numerous other papules on there and these are all neurofibromas and they can even have tumors inside um, the tongue as well. The ventral surface of the tongue looks very, very different. It doesn't have all those papillae. It doesn't have the filiform papillae. It doesn't have the fungiform papillae. It actually looks kind of bald, doesn't it? But that's um, because the mucosa is very thin. And through the thin mucosa, you can appreciate the underlying uh, structures with the lingual um, veins are highly visible. Sometimes you'll see little varices, And sometimes you'll see these tiny little finger-like projections called fimbriae. And um, fimbriae just means finger-like projections. I don't know what those do either. I don't know why I'm talking to you since I don't know much about the the oral cavity. Um, The varics, sometimes, this was a patient who actually was referred to me for evaluation of a melanoma, possible oral melanoma. It turned out that I was fortunate that this, and the patient was even more fortunate, that this didn't turn out to be a, a melanoma. This was actually just a dilated uh, vascular structure. And you can appreciate, in fact, that the lingual um, vein that would normally be visible here is actually not very visible because all the blood is pooling in that little um, varix. When you're evaluating the tongue, please don't ever forget the, um, if you retract the tongue and look, I've got my little two by two piece of gauze. And if I didn't mention it before, we always have to practice universal precautions when uh, examining mucosal tissues because the, um, otherwise we're at risk for, develop, for transmitting diseases, both from the patient to us and from us to the patients. Um, and here you can appreciate that the lateral border of the tongue, you're able to see that you have the dorsal surface of the phili- form and the fungiform papillae, and the superior aspect and then the lateral border is actually again covered by that naked thin mucosa and you can appreciate that there are lots and lots of little vessels right here and their are minor salivary glands in through here. The floor of the mouth, both in the medial aspect and on the lateral aspect, is actually the most common site of oral cancer. So if you don't retract, you won't see it. And oral cancer is almost as common as melanoma. So if you haven't diagnosed as many oral cancers as melanomas, I'd encourage you to do more oral exams. Um, the exam requires both a visual component and a uh, palpation component. And the way you do the palpation is you slip one gloved finger into the sulcus between the teeth and the floor, and the tongue, take your other hand, place it gently right underneath the mandible and just gently palpate. And you should be able to palpate this submandibular and sublingual glands or any other masses. This is an interesting case. This is a case of a a gentleman who is elderly. He had a history of lung cancer and he presented for a routine oral examination. Well, the resident who saw this patient reported that the oral exam was normal They had opened up the patient's mouth, asked the patient to say ah, and the patient did. I came in, and it was not normal. Some of you may be able to appreciate that there's an asymmetry to the tongue. There's this large mass right here. Some of you may also be able to appreciate that there's something going on right here. We've got a five centimeter fungated um, uh, tumor in the side floor of the mouth. So the patient was not aware of this because tumors tend to be asymptomatic. Patient wasn't aware of this because there's a lot of room in the oral cavity and in the neck. But this is a very advanced tumor and obviously the exam was not within normal limits. Most um, growths and lumps and bumps and tumors in the oral cavity aren't quite as dramatic as the one I just showed you. Here's a small uh, lingual frenum with, I mean a small papule on the lingual frenum. Clinically, it's impossible to tell whether this is a papilloma due to a human papilloma virus or if it's a squamous cell carcinoma. And as uh, many of you know, there's now been an increased appreciation that not only is tobacco and alcohol important in um, increasing the risk of developing, um, oral squamous cell carcinoma, but exposure to human papillomavirus um, also seems to play an important role. <coughs> Moving on, this is another common entity. We, um, I call it fissured tongue. Some of you may have heard of this as grotal tongue. It's not my favorite term. <laughs> and... Um, This is a uh, not uncommon entity, it's probably present in about 5% of the population. And here, it's actually quite dramatic, oftentimes it's not very um, dramatic. But if you evert the tongue, again, look at my little pieces of gauze right there helping to move the the tongue, you can appreciate that these fissures are actually, or these furrows are actually, can be quite deep. And it's not unusual to um, have pieces of popcorn, uh, seeds from, uh, grape seeds from raspberries, um, and other debris to sort of accumulate in those furrows. So sometimes when patients come in and they complain of burning mouth, it's something very simple like, ooh, they've got something stuck inside one of those little furrows. <clears throat> Let's talk about some lip uh, uh, lesions. Uh, this is a patient who came in with chylitis. And notice that there are a couple of findings here. Even if the patient didn't tell you that this bothered them, you... Um, can appreciate that there's loss of the normal architecture of the upper lip. Some of you may be able to appreciate that those normal uh, markings that I pointed out earlier seem to be sort of obliterated and in fact in addition there's all this erythema and crusting on the sides of the mouth. Anybody know what this is due to? Lip licking very good. <laughs> Um, But it's not just lip licking, usually there's something else that's causing the patient to lick their lips. And it's usually an allergy to either their uh, toothpaste, their mouthwash, something they're eating, candies. Uh, Mints are notoriously a common cause of this. And so are cinnamates. So cinnamates are present in lots of different things that we put in our mouth. Um, And by if you ask the patient to stop licking, they, they can't. You know, that's their way of scratching at their lips. Um, and you know why this is? It's kind of ironic because the more they, they, the more they scratch, the worse it is, or the more they lick, the worse it is. And that's because the, mu- the saliva contains this allergen. Okay, They lick their lip. The allergen is present in the saliva. The saliva is now in their lips. The saliva evaporates, hyperconcentrating the irritant or the allergen, and it makes it much worse. So they need to stop um, the underlying and avoid the underlying um, allergen in order to um, cure this problem. Here are two other patients who presented with chylitis. And these both, um, both of these patients uh, were on Accutane. And I have to tell you, I did not appreciate anything abnormal in this patient initially. But look, where are those markings? They have disappeared. So even though the patient complained of tremendous irritation and I didn't initially appreciate it, in fact, once I um, took the pictures, I became vi- it became evident that those marks were gone. And so this was acute irritation um, due to accutade. And here is chronic irritation. So here you have scale and erythema, um, very much like a chronic um, dermatitis. Here's another patient who presented with abnormal lips. Um, what uh, they told me was that, uh, what the woman told me is that she had these yellow plaques and that her physician had been working her up for uh, xanthomas. Well, xanthomas don't occur on the lips. They do occur in other acral areas, you know, the hands and the feet, um, but they don't occur on the lips. And in fact, um, these are, this is a hypertrophy of something that is not uncommon. And these are actually Fordyce spots. And when we did a biopsy, in fact, that's what we saw. We saw these um, prominent Fordyce uh, glands right there. These are ectopic sebaceous glands that just became more prominent. We are much more commonly uh, familiar with, and we see these much more commonly on the buccal mucosa. And these, typically present as these minute yellow papules on the buccal mucosa. Interestingly, my impression is that the incidence of these increases with age, and I don't exactly know why that is, Um, and that the only thing that's important to tell the patients, because sometimes they look up, you know, sebaceous glands on um, on the web or in a textbook, and they go, oh my God, am I gonna get some hairs that will grow, and the answer is no. These, interestingly, never ever grow a hair unless the patient had a graft, and it's not uncommon to have a uh, graft placed in, an, in the oral cavity from the skin when large areas of the mucosa are removed, particularly for oral cancer. They'll bring in a flap from the back, bring it all the way across the face and put it in, and then sometimes you can see hairy uh, mouse, but it's not usually a hairy tongue. This is another um, entity, not very common, but it is a uh, one that we talk about a lot in dermatology. And this is called melkerson rosenthal syndrome, or granulomatous chylitis. And the classic triad for this entity is recurrent oral facial swelling. Typically occurs in one lip, but it can involve two, just like it does in this patient. Um, they can the patient can have tosis or facial paralysis, and they'll also have that fissured tongue. Um, the histology is diagnostic. Uh, And that will show small, uh, non-caseating granulomas. And I love this picture, again, because it shows, initially you may not appreciate how abnormal this is until you look just here to the side, and you can see this is normal markings, and then they're gone. And that's because you've got swelling, edema, and caseating um, uh, granulomas (coughs) underneath. This is, an ex- in contrast to melkersson rosenthal which is pretty rare, this is very, very common. This is um, a mucoseal, and a mucoseal is a collection of mucosin that acc- accumulates in the submucosal area. Mm-hmm. Remember I told you that there were thousands of minor salivary glands on the hard palate? Well, there are even more um, on the lips. And interestingly, these typically occur right next to that canine, that eye tooth that we all have. Um, because this is it often caused by trauma. So a little bite, a little nick of the underlying um, duct and boom, you have um, a obstruction of that minor salivary gland, you'll have s- uh, swelling, and then it'll have this sort of translucent appearance. Sometimes it looks mucosal-like and sometimes it has a bluish hue to it. And if it's burst, you'll have this myxoid. Um, Exudate that will come out of it. These tend to be recurrent and oftentimes we have to treat these by literally marsupializing. You have to uh, dissect out that minor salivary gland, leave the mucosa open, even sort of tack it open so that it doesn't uh, heal right back over and cause another mucosal. This is what it looks like histologically. This is not the same patient, but you can appreciate that there's this nixoid mass right here Normal, minor thyroid glands are seen right here in the periphery. They're one to three millimeters in size, but when you have one area of abnormality and the patient sort of keeps chewing on it, because it's fun, you know, it's just a little irritation and it's painless, um, they'll actually cause further trauma and here you have multiple small mucoceles that have developed because of recurrent trauma. And that's why if you just surgically remove one of these, and you don't take care of all the other ones, they'll have a recurrence. And this is what it looks like when it's bisected. You can appreciate that mixoid material at the top and the fibrinous uh, scar um, at the base. And that's why, again, another illustration of why you have to remove, not only the little papule right here, but you have to go and get all the other affected minor cellular glands. And here's a cartoon illustrating That there are two real mechanisms for a mucosal formation. One is a little um, sialolith or stone that can obstruct the minor salivary gland, causing um, mucin to uh, be retained within the duct. And if you do a biopsy, it'll actually look like a cyst, but it's not really a cyst because it's just a duct. And then um, sometimes you just have, uh, uh, the duct has been severed, usually because of trauma, and um, you'll have free mucin collecting underneath the mucosa. This is a ranula. A ranula is a, exactly the same mechanism, but instead of occurring on the minus salivary gland, it's caused by um, a, a trauma to the or a stone in the submandibular or sublingual gland, and this will have you. In this case, the patient will present with this large bluish mass, and. This is actually a life and death emergency. This is an emergency where you, sit, when you see this, you wanna call 911 and get the patient uh, to the ER because this is, um, the patient can literally have their airway obstructed just like that um, because this um, mucosel, which is present in the floor, oops, sorry, I'm going backwards, sorry. There we go. um, can plunge right through the myohyoid muscle and into the neck. And um, I think ENT residents are much more familiar with this, and that's who you'd want to call as the patients on their way to the ER. Moving on to another entity. Um, Here, this is um, leukoplakia. Leukoplakia is something that I often have patients referred to uh, me for, but leukoplakia is a clinical diagnosis that requires histology for confirmation. And when I say histology, culture would be appropriate too if it was something that could be removed. The differential diagnosis includes oral candidiasis, coated tongue, hairy leukoplakia, Veruca's carcinoma, and other strange entities uh, like the syndrome pachynycchia congenita. Here's a patient who has these white plaques on the buccal mucosa. He also has them on the tongue and the palate. The patient complains of a sore mouth and swamp swollen lips, and in fact, if you ask them, sometimes if you say, hey, does it feel like you have some cotton in your mouth? I'll say, yeah, how do you know? And I'll say, well, some of us have experienced that when we've had a little bit too much to drink the night before and wake up in the morning and the mouth feels kind of dry and cottony. So that's what that feels like. The differential diagnosis for this includes poor oral hygiene, a cotton mouth, which is not really a diagnosis, more buccarum, bucarum, which is a fancy term for cheek chewing and lip chewing, uh, pseudomembranous candidiasis, and oral hairy leukoplakia, and lichen planus. Anybody want to guess what this is? This is very good. I heard um, pseudomembranous candidiasis. This is a very common entity um, in our patients because all of us have prescribed patients um, uh, antibiotics or steroids. Steroids so could be either topical or systemic, or it may occur because of an immune deficiency. It's also much more common in patients with diabetes. Here's another case of oral candidiasis. Now, notice that my title says oral candidosis. Well, there's this big controversy among people who are microbiologists whether the disease should be called candidiasis or candidosis. It doesn't matter to me. Clinically, they have an overgrowth of candida and that's what I need to treat. And how do I make the diagnosis? Well, uh, in um, oral candidiasis, the, um, these white plaques are always removable. And when you look at them under the microscope, you'll often see lots and lots of bubbles, which is what we're seeing here. And you'll also appreciate these hyphae. And it is the um, hyphae that makes this abnormal. If you see spores, it doesn't mean that it's abnormal, or it may mean that you have an entity other than Candida albicans. And then sometimes, particularly dentists, like to do what is called a cytologic smear, where they don't have KOH and they don't have access to a microscope, but they'll literally just smear some um, cells on a glass slide and send that off to the micro lab, where they'll counter-stain them with, uh, Papanicolaou stain looking for cytology and then they'll do a PAS stain and they'll see exactly what we see here which is a prominent nuclei and um, you can see the cell structures and then some of you may be able to appreciate that there are also these purple hyphal forms and that's the pathologic uh, confirmation of oral candidiasis I mentioned that Morsacaccio bucarm is a fancy term for cheek biting and and, um, tongue biting. And here's a clinical example of that. You can appreciate that there's that horizontal bite line that I told you always reflects the occlusal plane between the maxilla and the mandible. And then starting from right there and going anteriorly in a sort of a V shape, you have these macerated white uh, changes And then you also see it on the lateral border of the tongue. And that's something that we commonly see uh, in students who are studying for boards or who are late on their handouts or, you know, whenever it's a stressful time in somebody's life because they tend to sit there like this and chew on their own structures. So one thing that I often tell patients is first to make them aware of what the problem is and secondly encourage them to chew on gum rather than on themselves um, and um, then to try and reduce the stress in their lives. And oftentimes we're fortunate enough that stress sort of comes and goes in our lives and this, will, this entity tends to come and go as well. This is an entity called oral hairy leukoplakia and this is not Morsacaccia buccarum This is not trauma. This is actually a viral infection called, caused by the Epstein-Barr virus This is an entity that was described right here in San Francisco in the um, mid-'80s by uh, Deborah and John Greenspan, who were my teachers. And here you can see another example. And this was initially seen in HIV-positive patients even before we knew that they were HIV-positive. But this is a sign of severe immune, uh, immune suppression. And although it was first described in HIV positive patients, it's now been well-recognized in transplant patients and in patients undergoing chemotherapy, anybody who's chronically immunosuppressed. Sometimes it's not limited to the lateral border of the tongue. Sometimes it covers the whole tongue, like in this entity and in this patient. And uh, the interesting thing about this is that it's asymptomatic. It does have this corrugated white ridge, uh, ridges. It is typically seen on the lateral border of the tongue, but as you've seen, it's also present in elsewhere, such as the, do- the dorsal, the ventral, the floor of the mouth, as well as on the buccal mucosa. And what's important about this entity is that it actually has prognostic implications for developing AIDS with uh, 20 to 25% of patients who are diagnosed with um, oral hairy leukoplakia uh, meeting the AIDS-defining criteria within a year almost 50% of them develop that by 16 months and 83% of them develop it within 31 months. And some of you may wonder, how in the world did they ever figure that out? Well, the study was actually done on patients with hepatitis. They did physical exams and drew serums uh, on these uh, patients who had hepatitis, came back to the study afterwards, recognized that these patients not only had hepatitis but also were HIV positive, and then we're able to do CD4 counts and document that, in fact, that's how they defined the AIDS diagnosis. They met the criteria for AIDS. <clears throat> okay, let's talk about some toothy findings. I, this, you know, I'm a dentist initially, so, all the, so I still love these things. And as a dermatologist, we're often told you can't prescribe tetracycline, but it's rare for us to be able to see this entity now. But this is a patient who had cystic fibrosis. Who was given tetracycline for chronic suppressive therapy for the bacterial infections that they were at risk for because of their cystic fibrosis? And you can appreciate that, oh, sorry, that um, severe staining in a horizontal fashion, horizontal band like staining of the teeth. And you can appreciate that this individual was probably four or five or six years of age when they. Started getting the tetracycline because the teeth, the anterior teeth had already formed normally. But then they got the tetracycline. The tetracycline stained the for, the um, the developing teeth, and that's why they have only partial involvement of the anterior teeth. These are called the um, incisors, and then they have complete involvement of the teeth further back. So this is a nice illustration, not only of um, tetracycline staining but also how the teeth form at different points in uh, time and the um, first molars are actually the first teeth to develop even before the canines and the premolars so you have these teeth forming early on then you have the usually the typical the mandibular molars and then all the other teeth form uh, this is within the bony arch and that's why kids lose their teeth usually around 5-6 years of age they'll lose their front teeth and then later on they'll lose their back teeth and um, this uh, so I like this picture a lot obviously aesthetically it's not very attractive so we want to avoid that by avoiding giving patients tetracycline when their teeth are developing and just because I can't resist this is fluorosis this is a uh, individual from Oklahoma uh, where fluoride is very common in the normal uh, water uh, and too much of a good thing, too much fluoride can actually cause abnormalities and pits as well as hyperpigment, uh, you know, increased pigment uh, and deposition. And, um, but these teeth are unbelievably strong because fluoride is also very uh, much necessary for a good healthy dentition. And that's why it's not uncommon for us to give children fluoride treatments. Now, this is a patient. This wasn't a patient. This was a medical student that I saw. He was rotating through on dermatology. And I remember just kind of looking at him, thinking something's not quite right. And what's abnormal about this is that his anterior teeth, those anterior central incisors, which are normally much bigger on the maxilla than on the mandible, are much smaller. And he's got erosions, and we've lost all of the outer hard surface of enamel And because we've lost that protection, can you appreciate that there's a little ridge right here? I don't know if the lighting is quite right, but basically it's almost like an M&M where you've lost the outer uh, candy coating and you've got the soft chocolate on the inside. Well, that's what a tooth looks like um, in this entity. You've got the outside enamel, you've got the inside dentin, which is soft and a little bit yellow in color. And this is due to bulimia. This is one of the very few findings of bulimia. And what's neat about this too, it also illustrates another point about um, the oral cavity and how we take care of it, is that what happened is that the patient would, and I kind of tricked you because I told you that this was a man, because most we think of bulimia as occurring only in women, but it actually can occur in both men and women, though obviously women are more commonly affected. But after the patient would uh, engorge and then purge, throw up, He'd run and go to the, he'd he'd brush his teeth. And you can tell that if, assuming this is the patient, that this patient is right-handed because they brush their teeth much harder on the right than on the left. And um, so they not only had abnormalities of the uh, anterior incisors, but also on the left side. And that's what it is, is that the um, acid in the gut is coming out and then they brush, which actually ex- accentuates the um, uh, etching of the enamel and eventually causes the enamel to completely wear away. And actually took a couple of um, sort of curbside talks with him before he would admit what, what he did and then we were able to get him some help. But this, was not, this is not an easy diagnosis um, to get at if the patient is trying to hide the fact that they are bulimic. And this is obviously a very late finding Calculus is something It's not math, even though it's hard Um, Calculus is actually a calcification Of normal sloughed um, mucosal cells And bacteria and food products That accumulate on the uh, uh, surface of the teeth And this is an important entity Because when patients come in with lichen planus Or pemphigus or pemphigoid And they have swollen edematous painful gums, they don't want to brush their teeth very often because that hurts, and so that actually causes accumulation of uh, this hard material, which then in turn is irritating and causes inflammation, and so you get this vicious cycle. Um, This is actually a patient with lichen planus, chronic lichen planus, and you can appreciate that the gums are bright red and inflamed. You don't have those nice Scalloped interdental papillae. In fact, they're short and blobby, and um, you've got a lot of calculus accumulating up above. And it's imperative that not only do you treat the patient for their lichen planus with appropriate medications, but you also have to get the dentist involved and the dental hygienist to participate in uh, very frequent, usually every uh, three month, um, scaling and uh, planing, which is the technical terms for cleaning their teeth. And the calculus is so hard that they, that a patient can't remove them. It actually takes a lot of mechanical effort uh, with specialized instruments to remove that. But before you have calculus, you actually have plaque that forms. And this is a patient who's, uh, you're looking at their oral cavity, you see what appears to be normal scalloped interdental papillae, right? Some of you may be able to appreciate there's something going on here, but it's hard to tell. Right there, it almost looks like food products. And in fact, if you stain it, which most of our kids, and some of you may have actually done this as well at the dentist or um, in elementary school, they'll do these uh, experiments where the kids are taught to brush their teeth and then asked to chew on a red disclosing um, tablet. And that actually allows you to appreciate that in fact, there is a lot of uh, plaque that hasn't been removed. And it is this plaque that will eventually calcify. And if you look at it under the microscope, you'll see that this is normal sloughed sloughed, um, keratinocytes, bacteria, and food products. What do you have here? This is actually, the answer is right on the slide, so it's not a mystery. This is radiation carries. And this is a patient who had oral cancer. <coughs> was treated with um, radiation, completely uh, uh, killed off all the uh, major and minor salivary glands, and boom! Within less than six months, they have completely lost all of the um, teeth. And what you see here is mummified dentin uh, that occurs when the oral mucosa is so dry. We see. Um, uh, that we not only do we have mummified teeth, but the teeth are broken, and some of them are actually broken right down to the root tip, right at the edge. And this is actually a tragedy because this is completely preventable, and trying to treat this now is is actually a disaster because the bone underlying it is now abnormal as well. Because not only is with the radiation did you kill off the salivary glands, but you've also uh, damage the underlying bone and these patients are at risk for uh, developing osteoradionecrosis. So the, what, it's, it's actually something that's completely preventable and sometimes patients don't want to see their dentist because they had oral cancer and they're sick and they, you know, they just don't feel well. But you as a healthcare provider really need to encourage them to, participate, to get the whole team involved and um, avoid this uh, tragedy. So we've had a chance to go through common oral findings. Some not so common, but interesting. And I can't emphasize enough the importance of doing um, both an intraoral and an extra oral exam um, as part of your exam. I think I'd like to just share with you a couple of other cases that are a little bit more challenging, but if anybody needs to leave or take a break, that's okay too. Um, this is an unknown. This is a patient who presents with red bleeding gums and their chief complaint is that when they brush their teeth, their gums hurt and then they bleed. What do we see here? Some of you may be able to appreciate that there's a couple of, this is a restoration. So this little round spot there is not a normal finding. This is something that the dentist did to try and restore a um, cavity that occurred right at the gum line. Here's another one. This is actually a crown. Crowns are actually metal caps that are put right on top of a tooth, whether depending on the maxilla or the mandible. And then in the interior portion, we usually put a uh, porcelain or a tooth colored material so that it's not as visible. Um, But there's something else going on, something that we uh, as clinicians need to to appreciate and that's that the gums First, the interdental papillae are not pointed everywhere; they are a little bit boggy, and there's and it's and the gingiva is red. When you look inside the oral cavity, you appreciate that they don't have a lot of redness, but they have reticulations; these white net-like um, plaques that are ill-defined, located in the buccal mucosa. So we go back to our differential and say, oh, we saw white lesions earlier. Are these removable? No, these are not removable. So the likelihood that this is candida is slim to none. Um, What else could it be? Well, we know about Morsicaccia bucarum, you know, that cheek chewing. But remember I mentioned that Morsicaccia bucarum sort of looks like horizontal and then it forms this V anteriorly. And that's not what we have here. Um, Well, what else could this be? Well, this is actually classic lichen planus. With the reticulated white plaques that is seen in some patients. Occasionally, they will have white um, net like areas, but also a lot of erythema. And this is just a, an aside. I tend to treat patients to the point where they are pain, they don't have pain, and they don't have erythema. Uh, I do not try to re- eliminate all of these uh, striae because then I am. In in order to do that, I'll end up having to give them too many steroids. So, um, this sort of says what I just told you about. This is reticulated white plaques on the buccal mucosa. You can sometimes have involvement of the tongue or the gingiva. The reticulated areas are asymptomatic. The erythematous or eroded areas are very symptomatic. That's what I have here. The differential diagnosis of just erosive gingivitis is lichen planus, pemphigoid, and pemphigus. And the only way to make the diagnosis, if you aren't lucky enough to have these other clues, is to do a biopsy. Sorry. I can't emphasize enough the importance of, if you've made the diagnosis of oral lichen planus, to also ask the patient about vulvar involvement, and it is um, a an entity. The oral gingiv, the vulvo-vaginal gingival syndrome of um, candid of um, lichen planus, is now being recognized more and more that patients who have oral lichen planus also have genital involvement, and. In contrast to the oral cavity where the uh, lichen planus does not cause any scarring uh, in the vulva and in the vagina, it does. And these patients will actually have loss of the normal structures. This is actually, I didn't get a chance to show you what a normal vulva looks like, but they've got the labia majora right here, but the labia minora have been completely scarred and agglutinated, and then literally you have adhesions that form that can literally cause the patient to be unable to urinate and unable to certainly have intercourse. And the scars can extend from the vestibule all the way up into the vagina. Um, And here's another patient who had erosive lichen planus um, with, again, loss of the labium nora, loss of the clitoral hood, and um, involvement of the vagina. This is another um, case of a patient with um, vulvar involvement. So again, you see those reticulated areas, just like we saw in the buccal mucosa. You can see some more erosions. Um, We often think of lichen planus as idiopathic, but lichenoid mucositis is often due to drugs. And clinically, I don't know that I can tell the difference. It has to be by history. Um, And uh, this particular patient um, was allergic to a COX-2 inhibitor. But the list of um, drugs that cause lichenoid uh, changes is extremely long, and this is just a partial list. <clears throat> so, so if you see lichen planus, you see so a couple of things to take away. If you see red, boggy gums, think about lichen planus. Pen, think about pemphigus. Think about pemphigoid. Do a complete oral exam, do a complete skin exam. You may be able to make a diagnosis, but it's also nice to do a biopsy and confirm that. (coughs) And part of the exam needs to be a vulvar exam or a genital exam, because men are affected by this as well. Okay, moving on, this is another case. Can you appreciate that this patient has sort of this white plaque right here in the buccal mucosa? Can you guys see it? I can't tell. Yeah, all the way? Good. Looking elsewhere, the patient had these other plaques elsewhere, more classic locations. And in fact, this is discoid lupus erythematosus. You can see the contral involvement, which is so classic, but I don't think we often see the oral involvement, which is also pretty classic. And then this case also involved the vulva. And here is a well-demarcated... Daily uh, hypopigmented plaque on the uh, mons, and uh, this is discoid lupus erythematosus. When you see involvement below the waist, the patient is more likely to have systemic lupus as, as well as discoid lesions. Okay, when um, you want to treat patients with oral or vulvar disease, it's important to decide how extensive disease they have when you're targeting their treatment. So if they have local disease, uh, local therapy is effective, but if they have involvement of the oral cavity and the genital mucosa, then you may need to um, uh, give them systemic therapy. And I also um, can't emphasize enough that erosive disease is much more difficult to treat than um, Non erosive disease. So, and then finally, you want to, when you're treating patients with oral involvement or vulvar involvement, uh, remember that the side effects of treatment can be different than those on the skin. Specifically, patients will have more frequent reactivation of HSV or um, uh, recurrence, uh, recurrent and chronic uh, candidiasis. Okay. And this, I think I'm going to make this my last case. This is another clinical unknown. This was a very good-looking gentleman um, who came in for a non-oral complaint. And when he was talking to me, again, you know, I had this tendency to look not only at their skin but the oral cavity. And I have thought that I saw this abnormality. And I asked him to open up his mouth and retract the lower lip. And, in fact, he did. He had this localized Bony um, alveolar bone loss, just right here. The rest of his gingiva actually looks okay. I mean, you've got some interdental papillae that are scalloped and sharp. You've got some bogginess right here. But then when you look down here, you can appreciate that there's a lot more of this bulbous appearance. And um, when I did some tooth mobility testing, I just tried to move the teeth back and forth. I was able to move these teeth. And I was able to appreciate that you not only had exposed um, teeth, but there was bone was exposed as well. This is a very um, poorly recognized uh, sign of a very devastating condition. This man's CD4 count was 10. He was completely unaware that he was HIV positive. He was completely unaware that he was so immunosuppressed. In fact all he wanted to do was get on his plane because he was headed out to Paris to do a runway show he was a model. So I can't emphasize enough the importance of appreciating even subtle oral and cutaneous clues of patients' diseases. But before you do that, you need to be comfortable with the oral exam, and I hope that today you will feel more confident with your oral exam. I see a couple people have questions and I'd be happy to answer them. Uh, could you comment on treating uh, uh, HPV on the hard palate? I, I've used TCA. I just want to know what you feel about the trichloroacetic acid. I think the question was, if you see HPV on the hard palate, do you use TCA? Um, TCA certainly is, uh, we don't have good therapy for HPV and so it's always destructive. <clears throat> I. If it's small lesions, I'll treat it with liquid nitrogen. TCA is certainly okay, except for the fact that if you spill it, or it's difficult to control. I will tell you in my um, clinical practice, I tend to refer those patients either to ENT or oral surgery for laser uh, CO2 laser destruction. How about actinic keratosis of the, of the lips? How do you treat that? And HPV of the lo- upper lips? Uh, AKs. Oh, AKs of the upper lip. Those are tough. I like Aldera now. That's sort of my drug of choice. Um, but actinic um I like to do biopsies to confirm that I'm not dealing with uh, squamous cell carcinoma because Aldera, although I, the regimen is different and um, we don't have good studies to show that Aldera is actually effective in oral squamous cell carcinoma. One point to make is that oral squamous cell carcinoma is much more aggressive than cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma and will metastasize very early and so My preference would be not to use Aldera as my drug of choice. It would be to to excise it. And then to use Aldera to protect the the surrounding tissue. I just want to say I really appreciate your your lecture. Uh, Will your slides be available to us at all? Um, I will make a handout available, absolutely. Appreciate it. Thank Thank you. you. Any other questions? All right, enjoy the rest of your meeting, and enjoy San Francisco.